apostle who wrote this book, wrote this letter to a group of people in a region called Galatia. He wrote a number of other books in the New Testament, and one of those is the book that we call 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians was written to a group of people in a city called Thessalonica. Uh, you could go there now. You could plan a summer vacation. You could go to Thessalonica. You'd find it to be a city of about a million people, second most populous city in Greece. Uh, and at the time that Paul wrote to them, it was pretty prosperous at that time. And he had spent about a month there, perhaps two months, with that group of people, left, and then was writing back to them. And I want to read you one verse that he wrote to the Thessalonians, and we'll see how it ties in with our passage this morning. If you've been doing the men's training, the men's ministry on Tuesday mornings, you'd recognize this as a memory verse, 1 Thessalonians 2.8. It says, Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. We see in here this, this model of life in the church. Ministry, as Paul is writing to these people that he's been ministering to, but life in the church. You see him writing that he had affection for them. Not just duty. Not just a task that was assigned, but affection. He was well pleased, he says. Not, again, duty, not unwilling, but eager to impart, to pass on, yes, the gospel, but not just the gospel. He says, our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. This passage and the one we're about to read in Galatians 4 remind us that Christianity is unavoidably relational. It's unavoidably relational. Truth is passed on from person to person, whether it's parent to child, whether it's in a small group, whether it's in a Sunday school, whether it's in relationships, it's passed on person to person. Uh, spiritual gifts are used to help one another. Virtues of mercy and kindness and compassion and gentleness and honesty are lived out in horizontal relationships with one another. They're not just bare virtues on their own. They, they affect the way we relate to people. And sometimes I think we forget that. Sometimes we forget that there are real people on the other side of issues from us. We forget that there are image bearers of God, fellow adoptees in God's family. And so a, a conflict pops up in church and we focus on the problem, the issue, and not that there's a person, a person there. The church is not a sterile doctrinal statement or even a perfectly crafted vision statement. The church is made up of, of people. And, and doctrine is lived out by, by people. And finances are used by people. And people aren't replaceable cogs. It's not like well, one person goes, but another comes and takes the seat, so as long as the seats are full, that's fine. No, they're, they're people, image bearers of God, adopted members of God's family, and we ought to care and love about particular people. It's too easy to love the idea of church or an ideal of church and not the actual people that are around us. And not in a hypothetical sense, but like, like around you right now, there's people living and breathing. Maybe you can smell them, right? I, I really want you to think about this, not as a hypothetical Paul to these people 2,000 years ago, but you're in a church of people. And what does this passage that we're about to read have to say about that? 
The danger, though, inherent in the unavoidable relational nature of church is that it can become about people in the sense that the focus is taken off of God and it's taken off of building people up in Christ and it's centered around perhaps a charismatic individual that raises up a church around them, but it's really about them and their personality. It can be about somebody's own preferences and interests. We've got to avoid that error. And we'll see all of this kind of come up here. It's a different part of Galatians. What we've seen in Galatians so far is kind of a scathing rebuke. We've seen a personal biography in the first two chapters. Then we've seen tight theology in chapters 3 and 4, reasoning through the Old Testament and analogies. And now it's, it's kind of like a little bit of a breath. It gives a window into this relationship that Paul has with these real people in Galatia that he's writing to. And it tells us something about this relational nature of the, of the church and, and about the need to still stand on truth. Let's read this now in Galatians 4, starting in verse 12. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. And not only when I am present with you, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone. For I am perplexed about you. This unavoidable relational nature of Christianity lived out in the church as part of discipleship. And discipleship is simply helping others follow Jesus. Helping others follow Jesus. And we'll see three things about that discipleship and starting with the relational context of it. The, the context of Discipleship, helping others follow Christ, is relationship. Paul, as he writes here in verse 12, he says, I beg of you, become as I am, for I also became like you. What does he mean? In what sense is he saying, become like me? In what sense did he become like them? Well, it has to do, I think, a little bit with the way he approached ministry often. He describes it in the book of 1 Corinthians this way where he, he would adapt his approach at times to people depending on kind of their starting point. So he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23, for though I am free from all men, I'm not, I'm not bound up by the expectations of others, I have made myself a slave to all. Why? Why make himself a slave to all? Why adapt how he approaches them so that I may win more? Specifically, win them to Christ, lead them to Christ. To the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews to those who are under the law, as under the law, though not myself being under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. He goes on, he says, to those who are without law, 
It is the Gentiles he's talking about, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that I might by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I might become a fellow partaker of it. So part of this is to say, I became like you, meaning I lived as a Gentile because I wanted to, to see you come to Christ. And he says, now become like me. But part of it has to do with the unique challenge he's facing in Galatia. Remember, these were Gentiles, not Jews, who'd come to Christ, and now others are coming in saying, you need Jesus and more. You need Jesus and you need to keep the law. You need to be circumcised. You need to follow these dietary restrictions. In a sense, he's telling them you need to be like, you need to be Gentiles and become like Jews. He's saying, no, no. Become like I am, freed from the law, so fully saved by faith alone and Christ alone. So he's saying, become like I am. It's to beat the same drum that he has been throughout the book to say you've been freed from the law. I'm freed from the law. Become like me in that way. Follow my example. But he goes on to describe this relationship he's had with them that goes back a long ways. He says, you've done me no wrong, meaning in this past relationship, you haven't wronged me. But he says, you know it was because of, this is verse 13, bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. He describes it as a trial to them, but they didn't despise or loathe him. What was going on? Well, what we know, we don't know the details, we don't know what type of illness it was, but apparently... Some type of bodily sickness redirected him so that he went to them the very first time. And there's speculation about what that might be, and there's kind of three common ideas. One is that maybe it was malaria. and Maybe he was in a swampy part in the southern part of Galatia, or Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and he got really sick, and there's not all the kind of medicine available to him we have today, and so he traveled out of his way up to this higher, drier part to recuperate, which means when he got to the churches in Galatia, I mean, maybe he was just like dog sick. And, and um, you know, his nose and his eyes and he was weak and infirm and not like this strong, robust figure. That's a possibility. Another possibility that some have speculated is that maybe he had epilepsy. And it has to do with some of the terms that are used here in describing how they didn't respond to him. And without getting into the details, it's possible that that was his condition. And it was misunderstood at the time, and there would have been a temptation for people to despise and loathe, but they, but they welcomed him. Could have been just a problem with his eyes, because he describes them as being willing to pull out their eyes and give it to them. We don't know. But the point is, whatever it was, it was bad enough, look at verse 14, that they could have despised or loathed him. But he says, you didn't. You didn't. It tells us something about the culture at the time and how they responded to infirm people. I want to read you a quote here from a commentary that describes this. It says, the ancient Greco-Roman world could be cruel. And suffering people were often mocked, spat upon, and scorned. It was common to spit when encountering someone with an obvious infirmity or disability to ward off evil spirits. And the Greek terms translated here as despise or loathe could refer to just such behavior. To catch that, it's common at the time. And, and imagine what this would have been like as a sufferer. You're sick. Maybe it's something you were born with. Maybe it's something you came down with. 
and you're making your way through life and people see you and instead of being like, ah, poor guy, they spit at you. And they withdraw from you. And they see you not because of like, oh, this is a communicable disease. I need to keep my distance. But they viewed you as maybe cursed and they wanted to stay away from that. He says, that's what you could have done. But he says, you didn't. These Galatians, he says, you, you welcomed me. You welcomed me, received me as, an, as if I was an angel from God. Verse 15, where is that sense of blessing you had? There was a, a happy care, even though he came to them in sickness. Because he came and he brought the gospel. So before we move on, I, I want to point out two things here. They're not the main point, but it's, it's worth noticing. It's a great example of how God used bad circumstances to bring about a good end. What was the bad circumstance? Paul was sick. So sick that he had to rearrange his travel plans. So sick they could have despised or loathed him. And yet, it brought about a good thing. What was the good thing? It's the gospel coming to this people that did not know the gospel. It's a medical condition that rearranged the plans for the future and it brought about good. A couple weeks ago, I was able to teach at youth group, and I talked to them about, if you wonder, why does God allow bad things to happen? You think of that answer like a pie with different slices, and one slice of that pie, one part of the answer, why does God allow bad things to happen, is because of the good that he can bring through that. And in this case, the good is the gospel, the bad is the suffering. And it was bad, but it brought about good. We see this today. I have a friend uh, who was planning to go to Argentina as a missionary. This is more than, it's probably 15 years ago. And he'd been going to seminary. He had a sending agency he was going to go with. He had a region of Argentina they were going to go to. They even came and presented at our church about it. And then their toddler son, their firstborn, was diagnosed with diabetes. And, and it was uh, significant enough that he, needed, he would need ongoing medical care. But if he was around ongoing medical care, he'd be fine. But where they were going to go in Argentina did not have that. So they had to redirect their plans. And he ended up, after a period of disappointment, going to Utah and pastoring a church. And it's been a small church in a rural area without much gospel uh, influence. And, and over time, they've seen many people come to Christ. And they built this healthy church in this area that would not have happened had those plans not have been redirected by this diagnosis with their son. We see that here. Again, not the main point of the passage, but a side note I don't want you to miss. The other thing I want you to note here is it's a good reminder for us in an age when we are so tempted to connect the image of the messenger with the validity of the message. So think about the whole phenomenon of Instagram influencers. That was not even a vocation 10 years ago, right? Now that can be like your job. You're an Instagram Influence. I don't know what you're influencing towards, but you're an influencer. And among other things, if you look at people that are pursuing that, they're attractive people with nice cameras, and they capture beautiful scenes of their life, and often you know, kind of have a message to share. And we've become accustomed to looking at attractive, beautiful people and just putting more weight behind their message. Paul would not have been an Instagram influencer when he first came to Galatia, right? He was sick. And we know of other places he, he wasn't impressive physically. And even his manner of speech was not impressive. But it's the message, not the messenger. So it's a reminder for us to 
to not look at the messenger, but to think about the message. All right, first part, though, main, main point there, relational nature of discipleship, relational nature of helping people follow Christ, embedded in relationship, but not just relationship. Skip over this here. Gets us to the next point in verse 16. There's a content of discipleship. It's not just relationship, friendships. It's, it's truth. It's a place to pass on truth. Put your eyes again on verse 16. He says, so, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? He says, there was this relationship, and we were close, and, and now you're turning because I'm telling you the truth? Reminds us first there that we, we need truth, not just relationship. We need truth. We need truth if we're to follow Christ, not just relationship. There's actually maybe two errors that are being corrected directly and indirectly in this passage. One of those errors is what I've mentioned. We can forget the real people involved in discipleship. We can forget that there's real people around us, real people holding to certain positions, real people that are disappointed when things change. Or We can forget that there's people. The other error, though, is to be so consumed and caught up in the fact that there's a real person affected by this that I neglect the truth. I don't want to say something because it might hurt somebody's feelings. We want to care about the person's feelings, but we don't let that keep us from telling the truth. He says here, I told you the truth, and you're treating me like an enemy. That's a temptation for us, isn't it? We hear something we don't like. Maybe it's a statement about who God is from the Bible. Maybe it's a convicting thing about something in our own life, and somebody points out, says, this is sin. What you're doing here is sin. And they do it gently, and they do it kindly, and they do it clearly, and we react as if they're our enemy instead of receiving. Well, what Proverbs would say, he says it this way in Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Wounds of a friend there, meaning somebody who's bringing truth to your life. And it might hurt. That's a wound. They're saying... You're doing this, and it's not honoring God, and it's hurting people around you, and I love you, and so I'm going to point this out. That's a wound, but it's, it's what we need. Do, do we receive that, or do we treat them as our enemies? Truth. We need to pass on truth in discipleship. One of the things I want you to think about with this is m- maybe it's, here on a Sunday morning and something I say. Maybe it's in a Bible study. Maybe it's in a Sunday school class. Maybe it's just somebody talking to you and they say something you don't like and you disagree with. I want you to ask the question, do I disagree with this position the person is taking because I think it's not interpreting the Bible well or am I disagreeing with the Bible here? And those are different things. You might disagree with me and that's, and that's okay because I'm just like a guy with a Bible, right? I'm not, I'm not the authority. The Bible is. But if you're disagreeing, I want you to ask, is it because I think that Dan is missing something in this passage or misinterpreting it, or is it, is it the Bible? Is it the truth that's there? And, and that's a different thing. That becomes an issue of your own heart, and are you going to respond to God's word or, or not? So there's a content of discipleship, and that's truth. And there's a way we can respond to that, either by making the person an enemy who's telling us the truth, or, 
or responding to it willingly. And then the last part of this here is the goal. The goal of discipleship. It's to see Christ formed in others. That's the way it's worded in verse 20, or verse 19, I think. Uh, To see Christ formed. In other words, it's another way of saying we want to see people in the context of these relationships where truth is passed on, become more like Jesus. And what we'll see here is that that's not always everybody's motivation. And, And there's a contrast that's given here. Look again at verse 17. They eagerly seek you. Who's, who's they? Who's they? Well, it's the they that's been mentioned throughout Galatians that led to the writing of this book. It's some teachers that are coming in bringing a different message, what he calls a different gospel in chapter 1, leading people away from the simplicity of faith in Christ, not for good motives either. And that's what we'll see here. It says they eagerly seek you or if you have an ESV, an English Standard Version, a different, different translation, good translation, a different English translation of this, it might say, they make much of you. And that's the idea. They, they eagerly seek you, they make much of you, so that you will make much of them, is what it says near the end of verse 17, or they will, you will seek them. In other words, they are flattering you so that you will flatter them. They, they're making much of you in a way that might feel good, but it's because they just want to bring you to their side, to add you to their circle, to, to kind of elevate themselves. It says they shut you out, meaning, remember what's the error here? They're trying to add to the gospel, saying you need Jesus plus, and unless you're going to follow these other things, then you're going to be excluded. But, but they're doing this so that you would say, yeah, I want to be with the cool kids at this table. I want to, I want to be with them. And so they're going to make much of you so that you'll make much of them. Which is why he says they seek you not commendably. Not for good reasons. Not because they care about you. Not because they want to see you follow Christ. But ultimately to gather a a following for themselves. It says in verse 18, it's, it's good to be sought commendably. Meaning if people come with good motives, I'm not tribalistic. I'm not trying to keep you for myself. I want you to follow Christ. And if others help you do that, that's great. But that's not everybody's motive. That's a danger today as well. It can be a danger at churches as a whole, where they're tempted to structure themselves around a particular charismatic leader and his personality. It can be the danger of a small group Bible study. It can be the danger of a denomination or a, a religious movement as a whole, that it becomes not about Jesus, but about a person. And that's what it's warned about here. And we see the contrast in verse 19 where Paul says, my children. Actually, the, the, the word there is technia. It has the idea of little children, dear children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. He uses the language of labor because he says it's, it's, it's hurt, it's cost, but I'm, I'm laboring because I want to see you not just join Team Paul, but I want to see Christ formed in you, which is the goal. Not to make little copies of ourselves, but, but followers of Christ. We've hit all along through Galatians that it's we're saved by grace, not by works. We're saved by faith in Christ, not by what we do. And yet, we don't want to hear in that that what we do is irrelevant. Because no, it's part of following Christ. As Christ is formed with us, 
formed within us. And so more and more, we're acting like Jesus would. But it comes out of a heart that's been changed. And he says, you're not doing that. Verse 20. And I wish I could come and change my tone and not be so hard. In other words, for I am perplexed about you. I've got to be honest. When I saw the Paul the Apostle there talking about being perplexed at the behavior of people, I was comforted. <laughs> because I'm sometimes perplexed. And maybe you guys are too. If you're a parent, maybe you're sometimes perplexed at what your kids do, right? You're, you're teaching them one way, you're warning them, and they're going a different direction, and you're perplexed. Maybe you've been involved in a Bible study, and you've taught week after week after week, and people you've cared about there and invested in, they walk away from Christ, and you're perplexed. Maybe you've served as an elder, and you've tried to shepherd people, and they've rejected it, and you're perplexed. It's part of dealing with people sometimes. People that are making choices, that are dealing with sin, and that sometimes struggle. Paul says here he's perplexed. Well, what are we to do with this passage? What's the application? In this, in this passage, it is kind of like a parenthesis in the rest of it. It's a, sort of a relational parenthesis where it's sort of a personal window. I'm going to pull out three things, and they're really three things that we're trying to emphasize here at UBC, that we see either directly or indirectly reflected here as, as well. What kind of church do we want to be? There's, there's three kind of short phrases that we've been working on that we want, to, we want to have capture our culture as a church, our values as a church. Uh, and we see them here. We want to be gospel-centered. We want to be gospel-centered the emphasis in Galatians all along has been to strip away all these additions to the gospel that says you need Jesus and all this other stuff. And he's coming back to the simplicity of the gospel. And so even here when he says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? The truth about what? The truth about the gospel. So what is, what is the gospel? If you've been with us throughout Galatians, you can't have missed it, but maybe this is your first Sunday here. And so I want to make this really clear. When we say we're gospel-centered, what is this gospel that we are centered around? Maybe think of it with four key words. God, man, sin, and Christ. God, the gospel is first about God. God made us all. He made you. He made everything you see. He made the whole universe we live in. And it all is His he owns it because he made it. And it reflects who he is. And the moral character of the universe is what it is because it is God's moral character. So right and wrong is not just an arbitrary list of rules that he happened to throw down, put in your conscience and wrote down in the, wrote down in the law of the Old Testament. It's who he is. He is perfectly good and loving and righteous. So that is embedded in the universe he made. That's God. Man, he made us, not because he was lonely, not because he needed a pet, nothing like that. He made us in his image as an extension of his love to have more to love and to respond to him in love. As Father, Son, and Spirit, we call the Trinity, he was already existing in perfect relationship, but he made us as an extension of that. That's us. You're an image bearer of God but sin got in the way. 
You were made to know God, to have a relationship with God, to reflect God. But going back to the very beginning, the very first two people, they broke the very clear rules that God were, had, had given them so that sin, disobedience to God, it entered in and everybody since then has inherited that. Think, think about this. You, you might have certain characteristics of yourself that you look at old pictures of grandparents and you're like, oh, grandma has my eyes and oh, grandpa has my nose. Thanks, grandpa. And, and you see these inherited things. All of humanity has inherited sin, what we call a sin nature, so that all of humanity, without fail, has sinned, has disobeyed God. Coming out of that sin nature, there's a sinful status and sin that we've done as we've broken God's perfect law. But God sent Jesus. Our, our sin, if it just stopped there, would separate us from God now and forever. But Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. We read earlier in Galatians last week, I believe it was, that he was born of a woman, meaning took on real humanity. And the sin that you lived, he never lived. He perfectly obeyed from all of his life, from birth to death, perfectly obeyed. And when he died, all of your sin was put on him and all of my sin. He died for that as a substitute. He took that on. So if we were to add a fifth word, God, man, sin, Christ, the fifth word would be response. That's the truth. What do we do? Do we look at his example and say, I'm going to try to be better? No. That's not going to get you better. It might make you act a little bit better, but it's not going to get you to God. What you do is you believe. That's what Galatians says. We believe. We say, God, I believe that you're real. I believe that I've sinned. I believe that Jesus died for me and I'm trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone. And what do we get? Forgiveness, adoption, future hope with him. That's what we get. This is, in a nutshell, the gospel and we want that to be at the very center of church life. Meaning we're not just trying to gather people just to gather people. We want people to know Christ through the gospel. We're not trying to just meet any need in the community we can. Oh, it's good to meet needs. We want to meet the greatest need in our community, the need for the gospel. And we want the gospel to shape even the way we react to one another because we view one another as adopted children of God because of the gospel. And, and so I want to treat you like that. And I want you to treat me like that. And I want to treat you as somebody who God has extended grace to because he's extended grace to me. That's, that's what it is to have not just gospel doctrine, but gospel culture. So it's a gospel-centered church. It's a Bible-focused church. He says here in this context of discipleship, what he gave them was the truth, and they reacted against it. And that's what we want to do, is we want to, want to be centered, we want to be focused with this one on the truth, the truth of God's word. That's the authority. It's not me, it's, it's, it's the Bible. And so as you come Sunday after Sunday, I, I want you to leave, if you ask yourself the question, was I taught the Bible? I want you to always be able to say yes. Uh, not just was it entertaining and was it fun, and although we have rich music and I appreciate all those other facets of the service, we want to know, like, was the Bible taught? Was the Bible taught? Do you understand the Bible more? It comes from a conviction about what the Bible is. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is inspired by God, meaning all of it, all the Bible, is given by inspiration of God, meaning he, he breathed it out. It's from him. It's breathed out by God. And it's profitable, 
It's what you really need for four things. For teaching, for reproof, meaning to, to kind of warn about sin, for correction, and training in righteousness, so that, gives us the purpose, so that the man of God may be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We want you to be thoroughly equipped for life. And that passage tells us it's the Bible that does that. And so our style of teaching here is what we call expository, meaning it, it, we try to read and explain the Bible, not because, man, I just can't think of anything else to say, right? So I guess I'll just read the Bible this week. It's not that. It's not a style, even. It's a conviction about what Scripture is. It's what you need. It's what I need. Paul says, I brought you the truth, and you reacted against it. Week after week, we want to go back to the truth. And we want to react not by recoiling against it, but but pressing in and letting it correct us and teach us. And then finally, Christ-exalting. What were the, the people called they in verse 17? What were they doing? Wanting to make little followers of themselves. What was Paul doing and what ought to be our ministry? To see Christ formed in you. Not to see you become more like me, except to the degree that I'm following Christ but to see Christ formed within you. That's what it is to exalt Christ. We want to make much of Christ. Our worship, we want to make much of Christ. Our our goal as a church, it, it is His church. Christ is the one who builds the church. So we want Him to be lifted up in the whole ministry of the church. And we do that as we center on the gospel, going back again and again to what He's done, and we read His word, And we believe it. Let's pray.